The State Department's first Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer is busy drafting a multi-year diversity and inclusion strategy. The department's previous diversity officer juggled multiple responsibilities, but Secretary of State Anthony Blinken distilled that position to focus exclusively on long-standing workforce challenges. For more on what the new job entails, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the person Blinken tapped for the job, Ambassador Gina Abercrombie-Winstanley. I believe the most important difference is that the position is now empowered. The former CDO for the department was also the head of our Equal Employment Opportunity Office. Two huge jobs and two very different jobs. There is a bright red line between working on issues of inclusion than ensuring that people follow the law. And that's what EEO is about. And the challenges are sufficient there that, honestly speaking, I would posit, and I believe the former incumbent would say that there was not the resources and time to fully inhabit the CDO role. So in fact, I believe very little got done on the inclusion part from that person and based completely on the fact that they had a huge job as head of the EEO office. Going back to my first comment about this position being empowered, that is based on the secretary's commitment. This is a strong commitment, a sincere commitment. We have not had a secretary step out so boldly in this area and make clear that this is a foundational issue for the organization. And so that is obviously the major point is that the leadership and empowered to take it all the way through the organization, up, down, and across. Maybe to zoom out here a little bit from your own career arc within the State Department, can you recall moments where the department has perhaps fallen short of these kinds of goals of being a diverse and an inclusive workforce? Well, I remember when I joined the department in 1985 that one of the comments, talks that we got either from the secretary at the time or perhaps from the director general, that we were intent on ensuring that the department represented America. And walking into my first embassy in Baghdad, Iraq, and I was the only person who looked like me. Then walking into my embassy in Valletta, Malta, 30 years later, a little less than 30 years later, and walking into the country team meeting, and I was the only one who looked like me. And that recurrence that so many people, not majority Americans, that experience is repeated throughout offices in the Department of State, which is that you are the one or one of the very few Don't take me wrong, you know, we are both people who joined the Department of State. We're smart. We're told it before we come. It is incumbent upon us to habit our space. Nonetheless, you can feel intimidated walking like that. You can. And it does mean that for some people, you may hesitate to give your full contributions, which means we're missing out on something. We're missing out on creativity or background or experience that should be contributing to solutions. And when people feel intimidated or lonely or uncertain or perhaps unwelcome, then we're missing out on something. So from my first assignment to my last overseas assignment, the situation was the same. And that means we have failed in what we intended to do. Turning the conversation back a little bit more to the here and now, 
I would just kind of like to know, one, what kind of your goals are for this role? Like, you know, what kind of benchmarks or signs of achievement that you're looking to get out of your tenure in this position? And perhaps get a better sense of efforts under the previous administration with a multi-year diversity and inclusion plan, whether you had any intention of revisiting what's already been established or whether you're kind of going from a clean slate, so to speak. Well, I believe the most important thing that my office leading the rest of our organization is going to focus on is restoring trust in what we say. Our organization, our leadership has said for the last 30 plus years, we're not where we want to be, but we're making progress. Or we want the Foreign Service, the Department of State to look like America. We've been saying it a long time and it is not true. So we've got to restore trust. And that means making visible progress and making sure that people understand, even as we work toward this progress, that we are seriously working toward that progress. So before we set benchmarks, we have to know where we are, and we are going to be more transparent than we have been in the past, but as transparent as we can be and protect privacy where necessary, because we have that legal requirement and we have that moral requirement. We don't want to be putting people, as my mom used to say, on front street uh, for you know their backgrounds if that's not what they want. So remember, we can't ask people to what they are, but we can ask them to self-identify. I believe a number of people, myself included for years, I haven't filled out every survey that's come out to identify me as an African-American woman because I wasn't sure or I didn't think it would make a difference. What's going to happen? We've been saying this for a long time. So I believe by the stature that the secretary has given this position, that this position, I will now sit on what we call the D committee, the senior committees that select officers. So the entire building knows now there is a specific set of eyes, thought processes, and voice to speak for everyone, to speak specifically in support of what I like to call the cherry on top. Everyone's got to meet the requirements. If they're looking for a senior position, chief of mission, deputy chief of mission, etc., they have to have shown that they can do the work, that they are a strong leader and manager and carer of people, of our most important resource. And that cherry on top is we are looking for people who bring all of that and are going to be bringing different perspectives and backgrounds to it to ensure we look like America. So that hasn't been the case before. That is a big change that's happening immediately, and everybody knows it. So I think that's going to help rebuild that trust. Then we've got to get the data. We've got to find the data, which lives in the department in several different places. we got to pull it together, and we have to drill down and really understand where we are, not only bureau-wide, but office-wide. And that's where it may be more challenging to share the numbers that definitively, that precisely, because then you can identify individuals. So we have to see what's there. But first, we have to identify where we are. Then we can judge where we're going and how fast we can get there. But we can't set pitch marks until we know where we are. An important thing my office is also going to do is to amplify what's going on and share those best practices. This is work at this embassy. Others can use these same techniques 
to make progress. And it goes from what we call the soft things of difficult conversations, but the hard things, which is making sure people are breaking through those barriers to get good assignments because those good assignments get them promoted. And it's those promotions that get people to stay, to stay, to not lose hope and stay. To your point about making sure that folks do stick around, making sure that retention is as big a pillar in all this as recruitment, I was wondering what your thoughts are on how mentorship can be a component to all of this. I know that making sure that people can see and identify a mentor and see someone who is further along in their career than they are and see that as perhaps a guiding light that there is someone who looks like me who has gone up the ranks and here's how I can be more like this person. I'd love to hear your thoughts there on how that can be a key component of so much of what we've been talking about. I think most people understand that intrinsically. And uh, certainly it has been the case for me, although I did not find uh, many brown people ahead of me. And particularly, um, as you know, the department has a long history of sending, in the old days, confining African-Americans largely to Africa and the Caribbean. And that wasn't my focus and, and specialty. I was a Middle East hand. So there weren't a lot of people who looked like me. But I think skin color or even gender, they are symbols of deeper, more important things, which are shared experiences. So that I was inspired by many women in the department or people from the Midwest because, you know, I come from the Midwest. I'm not an East Coast school girl. You know, I didn't go to Harvard or or Yale. Um, I I didn't have those sorts of experiences. I, I didn't come from a wealthy background. So seeing people, one of my strongest mentors was a Italian-American guy from Chicago. Well, I'm from Cleveland, a big city, Midwestern experiences. And he was a wonderful mentor to me. There are many women of European background who are wonderful mentors and symbols to me just to see them. Yes. But that shared experience of navigating spaces as a woman gave me hope to see that they'd done it and therefore I could. Our mentorship programs have been lengthy in the department. I've volunteered for several over the years. Um, Sometimes I got matched. Many times I did not get matched. It certainly was challenging in the old days to be overseas and then try and do it with somebody someplace else in the world or in the department. But I would say I hope they worked for some people. They were not, the former ones were not very effective for me. And I believe we can do better. In the private sector, I participated in a mentorship program. I was a mentor for first-generation college students. And the screening that they did to match us and the questions that they provided me and provided my mentee, the topics for discussion. So we didn't have to figure out, okay, well, we have to talk six times a year or every three months or once a quarter. What are we going to say? I have to think about it. No, the organization based on where we were in our lives and I hope in our careers sent out questions so that we had we didn't have to think about it we had things to spur that conversation and delve deep so that we could have useful conversations for the mentee so I think we can strengthen the program within the department I'm absolutely a huge fan of them and they can be very effective and I think we can do better with them and they will be eagerly sought I do a lot of mentoring and have done over the last many years. But even while I was outside of the department, I was mentoring people who were still in. 
Keeping with this kind of theme here, one of the longstanding problems here identified by GA reports is just that the further up the ladder you go at the department, the less diverse it is. What steps in your mind can the department take to address one of the trickier problems to solve here? I think we have a number of tools and we are willing to look at them, to reinvigorate them, to expand them as necessary. You know, we can talk about that long pipeline, you know, when you bring people in, but we've been saying that for a long time. And frankly, I was part of a pipeline. And so the number of people that have been coming through should have fixed the problem. And so then we get to retention, promotion and retention. So we have to look at where those choke points are as people are moving up the ranks. We've begun to do that already. So we've identified choke points, but now we have to identify where are the barriers? What at that choke point, what's happening? Is it that there is a lack of preparation for something? Is there a lack of knowledge about how to navigate that choke point? You know, if it's promotion from one level to the next, what are the things that the officer has to do to really make themselves competitive for that next promotion? Is it those who are doing the selecting? And when you recognize that those who are making the decisions, as you pointed out, are largely from one group, then what they bring to the table may not be entirely compatible to recognizing the range of excellence that more diverse candidates are bringing. And they get stopped that way because people don't understand, aren't interested. We as human beings, we tend to choose people who look like us, who are like us, that we're comfortable with. And so we've got to inject diversity at those higher levels. Well, we've had a mid-level program. We had a mid-level program when I came in 35 years ago. So we have to look at that. Um, you know, how does it need to be reinvigorated? We have a variety of really ripe sources of people in the department who might be interested in foreign service careers, who already have State Department knowledge. They already have security clearances. They already have, you know, regional expertise that can be plugged in, not starting from the bottom. But we also have to make sure that our organization, even though we are an up and out organization, we have people who skip steps all the time. And they're not who we think they are. I think I've said before, many people, you know, had some questions and or concerns or reluctance about the Pickering and Wrangell fellowship programs, paying fellowship programs, because they didn't understand them. They did not understand the amazing excellence and expertise these young men and women bring to the department, that it might be some kind of backdoor. If one's worried about a backdoor, you got to suffer the way I suffered with that written exam, with that oral exam, and now the essays. Well, the reality is that there are a lot of people who are there who didn't go through that way. People who came in through the Presidential Management Fellows Program, through the AAAS scientist program, through the Boren language program, and in previous years, different programs where they didn't take the written exam. But because they brought expertise and knowledge about foreign affairs, about the State Department, they got recommendations that they could make the slide right in without taking the written exam. We have military people who came in 
who did not take the written exam. And so we've got to make sure people understand that. Largely, we are an upper out culture and we come in this traditional way, but we're smart and we're innovative and we understand that people bring a wide variety of things that are needed in the world, in foreign policy at this time that don't come that way. And we've got to be able to grab them a different way. So we're going to be using all the tools at our fingertips. Ambassador Gina Abercrombie-Winstanley, the State Department's first chief diversity and inclusion officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black. Literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. 
And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. 
And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career. Not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Hi, it's Kristen. Did you know that not doing things is easier than doing them? There's a lot of things to do, especially this time of year. But when you don't do things, there's more time to do things. Does that make sense? What I mean is when you use Shipt to get everything from gifts to groceries delivered same day, you have more time for the things you want to do. To not do things so that you can do other things, visit Shipt.com slash holiday. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com slash holiday. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.